Thank you. Thanks for coming this afternoon. And just so I don't forget, any of the aerial photos, I have to thank um, Ed Yedlicka from Fromberg. Some of you may have known him. He was a wonderful soul, and um, he's gone now, so I miss him. But he took myself and one of my colleagues up in his little plane one day, and we got some wonderful photos. Many of the images come from um, a site called the Yellowstone River Clearinghouse, which is hosted by the State of Montana Library. So if you're interested in poking around with the images, um, you'll be easily able to get to those. And then most of the photographs are mine or my colleague, uh, Damon Hall, who I've worked with uh, a lot. So if we get to the end and you're interested in any of the images or photographs, I can help you figure out where you might access those. So I am going to talk about the Yellowstone River. I've been at MSU Billings. This is my 16th year. And I've been working on river issues ever since I got here. I am originally out of northeast Wyoming. I grew up on a ranch south of Gillette. I did my PhD work at Texas A&M, and I studied the San Antonio River and um, some of its tributaries for my dissertation down there. So I've been looking at river issues for a long time, um, but they always keep me interested and fascinated. Uh, I'm glad that you mentioned my sponsors. I'll just put this up briefly. I've also been hosted by my local university with, uh, we call those mini-grants, and some of the work wouldn't be done without the office of my provost, so that's very good too. These are the colleagues I've worked with on these projects over the years. Um, we still work together. We have a writer's workshop every summer, and we've been producing, on average, three and a half scholarly articles a year about the Yellowstone River based on the work that we do, so that's been really fun. This is uh, a beautiful picture of the braided Yellowstone River. Um, we are lucky to have a river that has so much of this braiding going on. It doesn't happen in all parts of the river, and we can look at um, some of that's geology and some of that is human activity. But these braids are really important, and um, this is why we refer to the Yellowstone as the longest free-flowing river in the continental U.S. That's a little bit of a misnomer because we have what are called diversion dams on the river, and some of you may be familiar with those. Some of them are quite large. I think Dan's going to talk about the largest one when we get into his talk. But the diversion dams are really just creating a pool of water from which you can draw the, into the irrigation ditches. Once that pool is full, it spills over, and so the flow doesn't really stop. But there are those places. And most of those diversion dams, except for the really big one, um, are maybe five feet high or something. They are impassable by a boat. <laughs> um, you have to get out and do your portage, but um, mostly it flows and goes more or less where it wants to go. It's a dynamic system. Um, if you look at it from, I studied from where it comes out of the park in Gardner, Montana, just at the edge of Yellowstone Park and then all the way to North Dakota. There are 17 miles of the Yellowstone River in North Dakota before it um, flows into the, the Missouri River. Are you going to, I don't know, I don't know. I, I don't want to steal what he's going to talk about. Well, so. by all means. No, no. Uh, well, I was just going to mention that um, Lewis and Clark got it wrong when they camped at the confluence 
Were yeah. you going to mention that? Yeah, we're not covering Lewis and Clark. Okay. Well, I just want to mention that they got it wrong. They camped there for, I think, over a week, about 10 days, trying to figure out which was the main stem of the river. Should they go on the north one or on the south one? And they finally decided on the north one. But in reality, the Yellowstone River puts more water into the Missouri than the upper Missouri puts into the Missouri. So, But I'm happy to live on the Yellowstone River myself, so it's okay. So I do want to show you some historic images and talk about what these might mean to us. Um, this is a contemporary, mostly contemporary image of the river. Uh, the, the photograph taken there was taken in 2001. And based on historic photographs that were rectified to, to match the river, all along the river, the blue channel that you see there is the 1950 channel. And in some places, we haven't seen much migration of the river, but I do... Let's see if I can figure out this. Oops, that wasn't it. There. I do want to point out what we call relic channels. I mean, it doesn't take much of an imagination to see that the river used to be over here. Um, you can kind of see relic channels throughout this zone, and those are what we would just say used to be occupied with um, some branch of the river, maybe a side channel of the river. And at some point, those get blocked off, either through human activities or natural processes. And then it leaves a relic channel. Those are highly likely to be reoccupied by water at some point, because the river has been there, and the river could, um, through natural processes, go into those side channels one more time again. And this is then what we refer to as the meander of the river, and this is what I'm referring to then as the meander land. In this instance, what you're going to see in the next slide is the river begins to move. So that blue enhanced image is the 1950 river channel. Very much one main channel with this one side channel. Oops. And this is how it looked in 2001 the kind of aqua green that you can hardly see is actually the 2001 channel. But we actually have four layers of channels on that one image to show you that that over the, those ensuing years, about 50 years, has kind of moved in and out. Now the side channel that you'll notice is, is no longer functioning in the later years. And we'll talk about why that can happen. But if you look at the top of the image, you see we've kind of been all over the place. Here's another image. This is uh, in the 1950s. The river was kind of tucked up against the northern edge, and everybody felt pretty good about that. And then it's just slowly been making its way back across this um, area. And as you can imagine, where the railroad and the highway are, um, that's as far as it will get for lots of reasons. We have to protect infrastructure. Um, but you can easily see those relic channels that the river's been very close to that area in the past. And so it'll just swipe back and forth um, across this area. So why do I title this, this um, session Treasures and Troubles? Um, the side channels are really essential to some of the functions of the river in terms of the natural communities that live there. It's in the side channels that the fish go for spawning, and the little fish grow up in the side channels because they really can't survive in the velocity of the main channel. 
So we have to have these side channels. They are essential to the fisheries. They are essential to the spawning and the little guys growing up, getting strong enough, and they keep testing where the side channel goes to the main channel, and then at some point they feel like they can do it, and they're just out in the main channel, and, the, and the, that's all very good. But without the side channels, our fishery would be completely gone. And so if you, if you look at aerial imageries of some of the rivers in the Midwest, they are one main channel, that's it, and, and their fisheries are very um, restricted now to the kind of fish that can actually maintain, you know, their, their livelihood in, the, in those velocities. The side channels are also important because this is where a lot of nutrients come into the river. Um, debris will pile up in these. Some people come in, they buy a river, uh, river property and they want to clean all that stuff out and the fish biologists are out there saying, no, 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 <laughs> leave that stuff, leave the woody debris in the channel. It's going to decompose into the channel. It's going to provide nutrients back to the water um, and it slows the water down. Um, and so, again, that's what keeps the velocity low in those side channel areas. This is an image out in Richland County, um, and what I'd like you to notice, the river on the right-hand edge, where it's still meandering, that's an area that we would call the riparian zone. And if you've ever flown over, really anywhere, and you look down and you see that green strip down there, and you, you go, well, there must be a river. I wonder what river that one is. And that's because there's a lot more water right there around that river area than you get elsewhere. So clearly up on the bench there's not, a, there's not a lot of green. You can also see that, that that meander used to go from wall to wall historically across that river valley. And now we have a lot of irrigation going on out there. We have infrastructure going through there with the main highway. Uh, here's the little town of Savage down here. Um, and so from the historic view I would say that that riparian zone has been compromised to about one-fourth of what it historically was. Now, why do we care about that? We have all this productive farmland, and that's, that's good for our economies. These riparian areas, if you think of them as the lowest part of the basin, that's where they have so much extra water, and that's why there's extra vegetation growing there. But that that vegetation actually is taking things out of the water. It's part of our filter system to us to clean our water. There are plants that like arsenic. Yay. <laughs> right? So if you have those growing on your riverbank, you know that, oh, there must be a little bit of arsenic going on in here. And those plants like it, so they're actually taking it up. Some of the nutrients that come off of the um, fertilizers um, that are ending up in the river. That's what's helping keep that riparian area really lush. So we get a, a, a lot of filtering going on there. We also get water storage, which is good. If you can flood those areas during high water, um, then you're not funneling so much water to somewhere, which we know is what happens um, in the Midwest. The Corps of Engineers often has to make a decision to flood farmland or flood St. Louis. And guess what they always choose? Flood the farmland, right? It's easier to um, pay for the damage to 100 farms than to pay to the damage for 
400,000 people living in a city. So those are the choices that we make when we don't have the floodplain anymore and when the river doesn't have this wide area to, to work with. It's also habitat. Um, there's been a lot of study on the Yellowstone River. Uh, we have about, um, Joan would help me probably know this number better than me, but I think it's about $15 million have been studied, spent studying the Yellowstone River. When it came to riparian health, essentially they looked at the bird populations. <coughs> because the concept was if we have a good healthy bird populations we have a healthy riparian area if the bird populations are not healthy we know there's something wrong with the habitat which is then going to suggest that the whole structure of the riparian area is somehow at risk so those uh, avian studies are really important just and many of us love the cottonwoods um, I was I've been interested to see some of the historic photos. Um, last night in the depot, I was looking at some of the historic photos and how young the cottonwoods were around Billings. Most of our cottonwood forest throughout the valley is approaching 100 to 125 years old. We think that that's probably about the lifespan of the cottonwoods. We don't have a lot of juvenile <coughs> cottonwoods. So one of the problems that we have if we care about the cottonwood forest is that there's not a lot of recruitment of the juvenile cottonwood and that would happen in these riparian zones so as you compromise the riparian zones as you compromise what can happen there you begin to compromise the health of, the, of those um, forests and here's why we've actually studied cottonwoods quite a lot um, i'm not a botanist but i, I borrow information from them um, as you know, cottonwoods are prolific cedars, right? There's little, you can scoop the cottonwood out of your gutter some, sometimes in the spring. Um, unfortunately, the seeds themselves have a kind of a short vitality to them, meaning that they need to get deposited into the right conditions relatively quickly, and then those conditions need to stay almost perfect to get them started, and then off we go. So if you've ever seen where it happens, it's like, millions of cottonwoods in a room this size, right? It's too many. And eventually those, you know, some of those will die out. But that particular set of getting the seeds into the right moment at the right time with the right climatic conditions is, is kind of um, particular. So um, Nielsen and Rood have, have concluded that they must be deposited along stream bank zones that are moistened by a seeding flood inundation. So what that means is you've had a flood, completely saturated an area, and as that's receding, that's when you want the cottonwood release, and the seeds will deposit there, and those will be the perfect conditions for those seeds to, to really take off. So this is down at the confluence of the Missouri this spring. I took this picture, and what we have is a sandbar, and so sandbars aren't very very high in elevation. We had a lot of high water, so the sandbar got flooded. The floodwaters are receding. Those cottonwoods that are out there are probably about maybe 20 years old. But what can happen there is we can have a lot more recruitment in that area or in a, a blank part of that sandbar. And there is, I don't know if I included this slide, I'll look, but there are female and male cottonwoods. <coughs> And the females do better in flooding, and the males do better in drought. 
So one of the structural problems we have with the cottonwood communities is that the males and the females are getting farther and farther apart. <laughs> so those are some of the treasures of our river, and I could go on for a long time, but we also perceive the river as problematic, and this is a map I pulled off of Yellowstone County flood map this spring when we were estimating that we had over 600 homes in the county that were in danger of being flooded because of high water. And so on the left upper you see a map of Huntley, and on the right is the county map that was produced in May to illustrate where they thought the flood water was going to go. And so we tend to put our towns and cities historically near the river for lots of reasons, um, but that puts them in harm's way fairly regularly. Um, we've done many things to try to um, protect ourselves from some of these natural processes. This is the town of Forsyth. It is protected by a dike, almost the entire length of it. And what we know is that if the Forsyth dike fails, we're going to flood the entire town of Forsyth. And I believe this is one of our uncertified dikes in the state of Montana, meaning that the Corps of Engineers does not certify that this dike will sustain itself during a high water um, event. They have suggested, not just to the town of Forsyth, but I'll show you a couple more towns, that they all need flood insurance <laughs> so that they will be protected when this happens because the Corps of Engineers doesn't believe it's a matter of if it will happen, it's a matter of when will this happen. And now that our high water is coming, is, is bigger than it used to be, or certainly earlier than it used to be, um, uh, if I were living behind a dike in the Yellowstone Valley, I would be buying flood insurance. It is expensive. But I do, I do agree that it will eventually happen. What it will do, at some point, it will get behind this edge of the dike. The water's coming this way. At some point, it will get behind this. And once it starts ripping that out, it won't take very long at all during high water to do that. Here's an example up in Paradise Valley. And the blue image is the historic channel of the river. And during one of the high flood years, I believe this was in 11, this family became very concerned because the river was cutting right toward them. And it was cutting at a kind of an alarming rate. And so this fellow got his um, big dozer and went out here and built a little rock dam. Um, that was illegal, by the way. He didn't have a, he didn't have a permit to do that. Um, and what it did is it bounced the water away from him, most definitely, all the way over here. Within a few weeks, it bounced the water over here, and now this county road is at risk, which was never at risk before. So. One thing we are becoming much more aware of on our rivers is that when you stop a problem in one spot, you're almost always pushing your problem to somebody else. And that that dynamic of those mechanics of the river have to be accounted for in whatever you're going to do to try to protect your own property. So 
really good engineering can push an eroding dynamic to the middle of the river again. And that's an okay thing to do. If we do that on both sides, we end up, as we did in Laurel, with a high water year and the water coming through a very narrow pinch point and that velocity is scouring the bottom to the point that 15 feet of under river was lost, exposed the pipeline, a rock hits the pipeline, and boom, we have an oil spill. So these are not mystery mechanics to the mechanical engineer. This is about velocity and volume. And when you create those pinch points by pushing from both sides, that's going to force the water to come through there at a much faster rate. That's why those big, broad riparian areas, those big, broad flood zones are so important to us. The water dissipates, the velocity dissipates, everything just kind of settles down out there. But when you pinch the water into those um, narrow areas. So this fellow put one little pinch, one little pinch here, and it swung the river all the way over there within a very short period of time. This is also in the Paradise Valley, and what we have here is um, human intervention all the way along here, human intervention over here, and we are protecting a whole bunch of people who want to live near the river or on the river. And you can see this one's gone. Um, I don't think you could even sell that one now to somebody from, was it? Nevada, Las Vegas, where'd you go? <laughs> you were here earlier. Uh, but and in Paradise Valley, these are not cheap homes that are being built. So these people really want to protect their property. And I'm told that one of these properties belongs to a woman who's um, mentioned in Forbes magazine every year, and that she has huge um, granite blocks protecting her property. Um, but what we know is that that protection of that property is going to necessarily cause those dynamics to go elsewhere. So these are things that we have to think about. Um, private property, everybody wants to protect it. In Montana, we are strong private property advocates. And yet, the river itself is a public resource. So we have this tension out there. The most egregious part of the Yellowstone River is in Yellowstone County, where we have, um, over the years, put in lots of human um, restrainments. And so this is on that clearinghouse, if you look up Yellowstone and, and look this up. And what you see here is, in total, there are almost uh, 13,500 feet of bank armor, 30% of the bank line. So one of the real questions is, at what point do these things add up to a real problem for the river? And so there are some people who like to talk about thresholds. Well, 30%, we haven't reached a threshold there. What is the threshold? Let's, set the, let's determine the threshold, and then we're going to build right up to that threshold. So maybe it's 58% of the river could be compromised. And then we won't do it anymore, because we'll know that's our threshold. 
I think this is too dynamic to set a threshold. <laughs> I don't think we can know exactly where those thresholds are, but we know they're out there. And so I think what we have to begin to think about is not heading towards that threshold cliff, where once we fall off of it, the dynamics of the river, the fisheries of the river, are just gone. So at some point, we as a community of Montanans, probably, just have to say, you know, we're going to back away from that. We're going to not keep doing the same thing over and over and over. Um, because this is what you end up with. Um, you know, right now we're at 30% of the bank is completely armored. But again, <laughs> this is what people really love. So, you know, here's some riverfront properties that, you know, people, and you can see his armoring right there, <laughs> protecting his little corner of his, of his, here's over the years, um, Whoops, whoops, whoops. Let me go back. I keep hitting the wrong button, sorry. Um, this woman used to have this yard in front of this. That's gone. Uh, this house, they had to pull it back. This fellow I visited with this spring, he said, let's walk out and look at my barn. I said, okay, we got to about here. And he said, no, 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 because the river's under the end of his barn now. So this is a dynamic river. Uh, going to go... This is a series of images. This is over near Big Timber, and I'm going to go through these relatively quickly. But this is the Fairgrounds Road. These are the fairgrounds. Uh, this is 1948 River Channel. This is 1976. And one of the big differences there is, if I back it up, the, um, this side channel is no longer there in 76. Some of the islands have changed their structure. There, that's the overlay. That's another way to look at it. And so you see that side channel's missing. Um, now, in 2011, you can get an image that shows you that there are these human structures out there. And you think, well, why are those out there? They look like they're in the middle of nowhere, right? No, that's where the river was going in 2011. <laughs> that's why those structures were out there. And here we are pushing the water around, mostly through human activities. Still didn't matter too much. This is 2015. This guy panicked because the river had come from here to here in two weeks. In two weeks. So, uh, very quickly, that's kind of the messy picture. And there it is again. And I think I'm out of time, so I'm going to quit right there. <laughs>